News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC special GTFO edition. I'm Harry Siegel here in the Poconos with Alex Lynn. Hello. And we spoke this week with uh, vocal director of organizing, Jawanza James Williams. You're going to hear that interview in a bit. But first, here's Professor Christina Greer living her best life on the beach in Long Island, speaking earlier this week with New York City public advocate Jumani Williams. All right, it's FAQ NYC. I'm Christina Greer. I'm here on July 24th with the New York City public advocate, Jumani Williams. Hi, Jumani. How are you? Peace and blessings, everyone. Love and life. How are you? How are you? Uh, you got on FAQ. I'm just quarantining, you know, trying to stay safe. How are you doing? I mean, I know you're around the city quite a bit. You taking care of yourself? You know, I'm trying. It's been a rough couple of weeks, rough couple of months. So that question of how you're doing takes on new meaning, but... I think I'm doing as good as I can. I'm blessed, healthy. My family's healthy. I'm working. That's a lot to ask for even at this time. So. Right. My grandfather used to always say he was among the living and the working, so he was quite happy. And please, please give your mom my best. Obviously, she is one of my favorite New Yorkers. I will. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you today about uh, the protests that we saw these past few weeks, and it seems as though they subsided just a bit. But from your observation and participation, uh, what can you tell us about the protest movement in late July, where we stand right now? The protest movement was very powerful. They moved some bills that have been stuck for many, many years. They helped move some conversations forward as well, just across the nation. There's still protests going on in other places in the country. What happened here, I think the protests then began to focus on the budget. Uh, once the budget was passed, maybe there's a regrouping of the energy now, but I don't think the energy is gone. And there's some real conversations around policing. I do believe it has to be broadened out to public safety and just reframing what public safety is and where our money is spent and how it's being spent. Right. So in the framing of public safety, how do you think that Commissioner Shea has done? And what do you think he needs to do to broaden out that definition of policing versus public safety? You know, it's interesting. When I have conversations with the commissioner and even conversations with the mayor, they're really good. When I see how things play out after that, it's very concerning to hear some of the comments recently made by the commissioner. at Comstant was also very concerning. And I just hope that the commissioner is brought into this notion of what public safety is and that public safety is not simply just sending additional police officers to a community. And, I, you know, I start the question of what the mayor believes policing is, because some of the comments I'm hearing, not just from the commissioner, but from leadership, is a, is a bit strange. And other commissioners and other agencies haven't been allowed to do certain things. Uh, Dr. Barbeau, mm-hmm. who was called out of her name, was forced to apologize. And it's just hard to believe that that same kind of uh, accountability, or, or that wasn't even accountability, I don't know what that was, but that same kind of, you know, managing is not happening over in the, in the police department. So there also seems to be a difficulty in their administration across the board to just admit that there is disparate police. 
and that mm-hmm. we police different communities differently. There just is a reluctance to accept that, there's a reluctance to say that publicly. So it's hard to deal with a problem that is not being acknowledged. Right. Well, that seems like the age old problem of America, never diagnosing the issue and wanting to just move past it. But I mean, I I guess I want to follow up with this question, because the mayor in 2013 campaigned on A Tale of Two Cities and the inequities of stop and frisk and his black family and black son uh, not being policed in the same ways. So why is it that we have this reticence from the mayor to call it what it is? And do you think that Commissioner Shea is the commissioner we need at this moment to move forward from hyper-policing to community policing? I said before, the mayor that ran in 2013, many of us haven't seen him in a while. There's another 16 months. Um, OP returns and OP governs that way. There's some, some points of light that I see in some of the things he's doing now. So I hope that only continues and grows. But then there's a lot of other points that you have a lot of questions raised about that. And he did use proximity to blackness to, to get elected. And there's a reason to, to, to be asking a lot of the questions that we're asking now, particularly on the backs of black and brown folks after the pandemic, after gun violence. But, but again, my conversations with him are good. Some of the points of light I see are good. So I want to encourage those. We have to get through these 16 months. We got to get through this summer. Mm-hmm. This summer. In terms of commissioner, I've always been reluctant to jump out and say that folks should resign. I've always, whether it's NYCHA or whether it's DOE, whether it's a police department, how many people do we actually need? How many people need to resign every time? So I'm very reluctant to do that. What I will say, there has to be some alignment. Either the mayor has to say that he does not really believe the things that he has said to, or he does. And he has to make sure there's alignment over the, the NYPD, because I'm not sure that there is, based on even recent changes of, of certain things. So I, I'm just concerned about it. Now, mm-hmm. my, my hope is that there is alignment, and I hope that the conversations that we have play out in real policy ways. Yeah. Um, it's just, there's real concern right now. And the victims and their families of people who are we're losing in, in, to gun violence, not just here, but across the country, they don't need rhetoric and they don't need, like, what I like is that the communities are now really demanding and are saying, listen, we understand that law enforcement has a role to play. We want that role, but we also understand we have a right to ask for better policing and safer streets at the exact same time. And we shouldn't have to choose. Right. And that's a message that everybody needs to get on board with and, and produce results for. Now, what is your office doing about the recent spikes in gun violence that we've seen across the city? I mean, we're obviously nowhere near the numbers that we saw in the late 80s and early 90s, but it has been obviously a market spike since, say, last summer. What are, what are you and your office doing to kind of assist New Yorkers with that? Definitely. Last weekend, praise God, was lower than the weekend before, which is just horrendous. So... Hopefully that trend keeps going. We do know it's going to get warmer. Uh, you know, what I do is I always want to make sure we're putting context. And I've done a lot of work around this. Most folks know the work I did around the abuses and stuff. And first, but I'm most proud of the work that we've done on gun violence that was working. So pre-pandemic, we were at historic, almost unsustainable lows when it came to that kind of violence and doing really good work. And then we had a pandemic. And so it's, we've seen everything get worse in these communities, housing, possible facings of eviction, Access to health care, access to quality food, food insecurity is, is bad, uh, getting proper education. All of these things have gotten worse. Why we thought gun violence wouldn't get worse 
uh, is just weird to me. So many of us were saying we need to have a plan before the summertime, and we didn't. And so we know that there are structural inequities that have to be addressed, and we have to really focus on and These things are not excuses. I want to make that clear. There's no excuse, and there has to be accountability for someone picking up a gun, shooting it in a crowd, and killing babies and grandmothers and high school seniors who are graduating about have a scholarship to play basketball. Like, there has to be accountability for that. But we also have to make sure we're focused on the right thing. So we recently wrote a letter to the mayor and the commissioner saying, look, there's some long-term solutions, but right away, here's some things that we can do. One is, and that meaning that the commissioner had with Comstat was a perfect example, Comstat should not just be a police tool. It shouldn't be just the police department and the commanders of the precincts who are saying, this is how I'm responsible for this data. No. Let's have a community Comstat program where on the local level in the precincts, everybody gets in a room, all the community groups, everybody who has uh, some accountability, so everybody looks at that number and everybody shows what they're going to do to help address that concern. On a citywide level, all the agencies should be doing the same so we can have some accountability uh, for the things that are making people communicate through violence. Mm-hmm. Two, we have to build on the pure uh, violence model that's there and that hasn't been working we recommended something called an advanced peace model, which is peer-reviewed. Uh, and basically, you find out the folks who are most likely to shoot or be shot, and they have incentive. They basically get paid for achieving life accomplishments, whether it is applying for a job, whether it is getting a GED. People sometimes balk at that, but I say, why do you have comfortability spending money to send police and jail them as spending a fraction of that to incentivize things that will help them throughout their life? And lastly, we're just saying police should do their job. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a slowdown that was anecdotally believed to happen, but that slowdown was based on things that just weren't true. Bail reform. The New York Post, of all people, shot that down, saying that the defund the police, the NYPD was not defunded. Other agencies had more money taken from them than the NYPD. wasn't even close to a billion. And the chokehold bill, which just went into effect on the 17th, and the slowdown was happening for about three weeks. So all those who say that law enforcement has no role to play, they're wrong. All those who say law enforcement is the only thing that's needed and the biggest part that's needed, they are also wrong. So those are some things that we can do right now. Congress, of course, needs to get on the ball because right. there's way too many guns coming into the community. We need the supply and demand response. Mm-hmm. We obviously need to cut it off at the, at the source, at the root. So what are you going to be looking forward to in the next few months and also in 2021 as we heat up towards election season. Obviously, you're still working on uh, gun violence issues. Uh, what other issues are going to be your focus for the next few months? Well, we are looking at how we're going to reopen the school. I think we're going to have a lot to say about that in the next coming weeks. Because the plan that's out there, I don't think really cuts it. Uh, we're looking at even things that will be hearing about next week as well when it comes to our energy. Um, I think we're going to be facing some blackouts. I think folks are tired of getting rate hikes, and that's going to probably the next week come out. But we have some structural inequities. We put out a report that had to do with the pandemic, but just we remained it simply talking about structural inequities that had they been addressed from housing to education, folks, and then healthcare might not have been hit so hard. So we want to make sure those come into place. We're also going to try to lift more of the experiences of black trans women in particular, um, who uh, I think uh, the voices aren't being heard and the issues aren't being addressed. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, and, and before I let you go, what are you telling New Yorkers right now who call your office or come to your office who are just 
stretched to the limit and completely stressed out? What advice are you giving them? What policy proposals are you giving them to help put their minds at ease at this moment? Well, this is tough times. I'm not sure there's a way to put everyone's mind at ease, but everybody is going through a lot. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure, you know, even our office, that we take some time to talk about it. We continue to put people in touch with resources that we have, whether it's eviction, whether it's trying to get the stimulus package and unemployment. We continue to do the job that we've been doing. It's just gotten a lot harder, and we're getting more calls. Um, you know, to the question you just asked me, the city is going through some tough times, and it may get only tougher. It's easy to be progressive when there's a whole lot of money being flushed. But it's hard to be progressive when there's no money. Mm-hmm. And so we have to look, as we go into the election season, people who are not going to have knee-jerk reactions that makes things worse in the long run. And that we hold up the uh, social services and the networks that are there, uh, understanding if we take that away, uh, our city gets worse and not better. And so we need to be looking for revenue-raising options which the governor has been ignoring for a very long time, especially if we're not going to get that money that we need from the federal government. What are some and of those revenue-raising options you have in mind? Uh, well, we need a, a billionaire's tax, a millionaire's tax. You know, right now, something we can do, there's more billionaires here than anywhere else. And the fact that the government has been trying to cut Medicaid before the pandemic and won't even attempt to look at revenue-raising options from the people who can afford it the most and everybody says, oh, they're going to flee. People are more worried about the millions and billionaires than the folks who are going to have to find a way to pay for their medical care, find a way to pay for their rent. And if they cannot, they will die or be evicted. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like we don't care about those folks. We just care about millions and billionaires, and that is a definite problem. And here in the city, if we're going to say that there's a hiring freeze, and it should be, everybody, this has to be done equitably. So we can't tell folks in Kings County we're going to close your gynecological oncology department while maternal mortality rate is highest amongst black women and we're not able to hire doctors, nurses, teachers, social workers, guidance counselors. The only thing we can hire is additional police officers. We can't do that. So we're either going to have a hiring freeze or we're not, or we're going to look at this thing holistically. And so those are the things that we have to look at as we're guiding through the city moving forward because it's going to be really tough, and you have to have someone who's not going to just try to cater to whatever winds are available or is afraid to have the hard conversations because the city needs leadership that's going to stand up and be bold. And if we had that in the city, state, and even a national level, this crisis would not have hit us as hard as it did. Right. Okay, so last question before I let you go. I think I know the answer, but I still want to ask it anyway. So I know we need leadership on the city level that's been missing and we definitely need it November 2021. Could that person be the current public advocate running for mayor? Uh, (laughs) And if not, uh, does the public advocate have someone in mind that he thinks would be an interesting choice for the 110th mayor of New York City? As of right now, I don't know. I ask folks to have this job and I'm excited to ask them to have it again. I think we're doing a good job in kind of redefining even what this office can do. So I plan on, on doing that again. I don't have a preferred candidate. We'll wait and see how things play out. I know there's going to be uh, some additional entrance into the race as well as going to shake some things up. So we're going to listen to what folks have and hopefully be able to be a part of creating some platforms that all the mayoral candidates have to respond to 
and not be able to hide from decisions they've made or some very real tough questions about how they're going to do things moving forward. Jumani Williams, public advocate of New York City, I so appreciate you joining us on FAQ NYC. Please, please continue to be safe, and thank you so much for what you do for the city. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. More importantly, I'll make sure my mother knows you said hello. Listen, we're going to shout out your mom on FAQ NYC, Professor Greer's favorite New Yorker. <laughs> she's threatened to run against me a few times well listen I mean I was just about to say if she's thinking about running for mayor then you know she needs to give me a call because I think that she could whip some things in shape real fast <laughs> alright I'll All right. let her know okay take care peace and blessings thanks, thanks again so there's still a lot of talk about uh, Jumani Williams as an appealing candidate for mayor He's still not biting on that, but I'll note that the last person we asked that question to who gave us a non-answer, Maya Wiley, is now resigned from MSNBC and very much moving into that mix. So with that, we're going to go from politicians to the people who try to press politicians. Let's jump right in. It's FAQ NYC, recording at noon on Wednesday. I'm Harry Siegel here with Alex Brooklyn. We're joined by the uh, director of organizing at Vocal, Jawanza James Williams. Jawanza, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here, Harry. So you and I had had a uh, sort of quick Twitter exchange yesterday about the occupation at City Hall and what happened with that after the budget's passage and Vocal's role. And then as we were talking on the phone, having crossed it over to there after that, I saw Errol Lewis of New York One tweeting, there must be some mistake. I was told that personally antagonizing piles at their homes and spray painting obscenities everywhere was a brilliant and effective strategy. That, that in response to the budget cut, the vocal says came from Corey Johnson. Corey Johnson said, that's not so, or it was not a punishment. After, in the course of these protests, people came to his boyfriend's house and were, were hitting the buzzer and leaving graffiti and so on. So I think for a lot of New Yorkers who've been half following these things, there's a lot to unpack here. And I was hoping you could start by just taking us through the occupation or occupations at City Hall Park, what those were about and Vocal's role in them. Sure thing. So first, I want to say that Vocal New York is a grassroots membership organization. It's statewide. We've been around 20 years. We work to end mass incarceration, homelessness, the drug war, and HIV and AIDS epidemics in New York State. And we do that through leadership development and organizing for issue-based unions, people directly impacted by those issues who ultimately produce the demands that we as an institution push forward through our legislative platforms on city and state level. And we have chapters in Rochester, Buffalo, Syracuse, Westchester County, and Albany, and of course, New York City. So on June 23rd, uh, we, along with a number of leftist organizations, in particular Black organizers, who we've subsequently named ourselves Free Black Radicals, but Vocal and myself and my own leadership was the most public. So like the association to Vocal New York being the convener of Occupy City Hall, that's sort of where that comes from. But I will say on June 23rd, we called the movement to Occupy Space at City Hall because... Okay, which, which we here is this? Free Black Radicals? And, black Radicals? Is and this local? I mean... 
free black radicals and vocal therefore by proxy because I'm a, the director of organizing at vocal and organized vocal and it's in its institutional power to make it happen to support that happening and there's a group of black organizers who I could name I don't really want to name them individually in this moment because I would I didn't tell them about this interview but essentially we asked people to respond to the moment in the country where thousands of people across the country in small towns and in big cities like New York, but even towns like my hometown, Beaumont, Texas, I know that there were deep on the police rallies even there, which indicated this sort of like widely felt sentiment. A lot of people really did believe that the answer to violence in our communities is not police, but also like ending poverty, et cetera. But oftentimes people don't understand how budgets work or how to make material your demands. So the location of City Hall was important because that's the building, that's the center of democracy in New York City and the flesh and blood human beings that can implement the demand to defund the police work in that building. And those people are um, Speaker Cory Johnson because he sets the agenda for the city council and Mayor Bill de Blasio because he signs into law whatever budget the city council ultimately passes. So to prevent people from getting, you know, murals in the street alone that say Black Lives Matter, to get tangible material sort of changes that have immediate material impacts on people's lives, we wanted to make sure that it was crystal clear that the way to do that was to use the existing democratic structures in our society. And also so that the establishment Democrats could not placate the public and make us believe that they had actually met the demands of the people because we were out in the world, you know, in physical space to remind them that thousands upon thousands of people that are there physically, even amid a pandemic, are demanding this sort of shift in how we structure our city. So the backdrop here, right, is first the Floyd protests and people coming back out on the streets, and then this sort of increasingly urgent conversation about cutting $1 billion from the NYPD's budget which, depending on how you count, is, is nominally $6 billion and really closer to, to 12 once you get into benefits and stuff. Mm-hmm. Also, if you count the moving of some of that budget, like, for instance, the police in schools, just over to a different organization. So that's so, just going over to so the Department of Ed. You're doing this mm-hmm. organizing work over years. There's suddenly this big street movement and a renewed sense of energy around reform. And you're trying to get people in this park right outside where our representatives are going to decide. And that vote is set for the end of June, right? Yeah. So the initial occupation, again, and I think we should think in wider frameworks and just reform. It was an abolitionist space, which means building campaigns that are pointing or headed towards a future where we don't actually need prisons or police, because that would actually mean that we're genuinely safe. Because again, police don't create safety. In fact, we just saw them strangle someone for eight minutes in public, and they do this all the time. And the health department in New York City just found, released a report showing during the occupation that the NYPD actually doesn't even report all of the ways in which they harm and maim people across the city. Like this is our epidemic that we're dealing with. And I think it's not just about the NYPD as a sort of organized body of officers, but really about policing as an institution, policing as a practice, policing as a sort of modality of executing a culture of violence and domination in our society. So it was really about that. And the reason why we chose June 23rd up until the end of the budget is because we wanted to make sure that people understood that the negotiations that were happening throughout that week, that um, we wanted to be in that space 
calling for that demand. And that's what, you know, in direct action, occupations often function in that way where you can't ignore us. And like the whole world is watching what's happening during the budget negotiations because there's 10,000 people outside in the park. And also people calling council members on their cell phones, showing up at people's apartments and stuff like that, sort of in the broader context. Is that Yeah, another... Another tactic that people didn't know that was invisible that we were doing was that the first day of the occupation or the launch, we were simultaneously running an online action, a text bank, where we had three to 400 people across New York City texting over 100,000 contacts to contact Speaker Corey Johnson and Mayor Bill de Blasio to do two things at once. One, amplify the demand to the people in the physical space, but also to do sort of mass political education because this was so much about teaching people sort of frameworks about safety and about violence that don't depend on dehumanizing ideas or ideas that black people are not full human beings, which is why it's an action that was within the sort of framework of Black Lives Matter. So as we all saw it unfold, those budget negotiations where the city was discussing defund, refund as it's kind of commonly referred to, to defund the NYPD and use that money to fund uh, non-government organizations and different kinds of nonprofit social work organizations in communities. So as we saw, Corey Johnson kind of late at night apologizing for the budget he said that he was only able to pass, that the, he really fought for it in the mayor. And we saw other various councilmen vote no on that budget because they felt like it wasn't real. It didn't do enough. Jimmy Van Bramer, who has also been a guest on this show, he voted no on that budget for those reasons. And Corey Johnson even said now that 50A, the law that protects the quote unquote privacy of cops by shielding their their records. Corey Johnson said that now that 50A had been repealed, he would have preferred to go through those records and actually purge the NYPD of the worst of the worst. Um, That's not a quote. So during that and that kind of like understanding by showing up to the councilman's boyfriend's house or by calling just the council people, I wonder if that kind of missed the mark a bit now that, as we can see, a lot of the NYPD and the focus in this fight happens more in the courts between the unions and the state. So I appreciate that question and that sort of framing. However, I do think it's important for us to remember what's at stake and to remember the sort of scope of direct action. And like the whole purpose of direct action is to disrupt peace, to cause people uncomfortability so that they actually listen to what you're asking them to do. And I do want to say two things about like there were two different mobilizations to Corey Johnson's boyfriend's apartment, only one of which I participated in as an individual, not as vocal as an institution. Um, but that was, you know, before the occupation happened, when there was no vandalizing of this building, um, because we can hold those complexities about like, you know, holding power to account, but not disrupting the average New Yorker's life to a degree where we, you know, damage our property. So, and I don't know about the sort of direct action that led to like vandalizing and doorbell ringing and all that. I don't know about that. So I can't really speak about that. And that wasn't uh, sort of like tactic that was launched out of the sort of leadership of the occupation. But again, we're talking about, you know, organizing the public. It's very different than when you're organizing members of an organization, which means people that have a set of values and a sort of framework of direct action and how to advance campaigns or how to advance an issue. You lose that ability whenever you organize the wider movement or the wider public, because now those relationships are not there. And also even like political relationships that exist that are challenged or even the sort of 
framework of direct action, like, that's not even understood because people aren't necessarily involved in direct action organizing, etc. So I do think, though, that even if they did do these things that they have been accused of doing or people have been accused of doing, um, it pales in comparison to what we're asking Corey Johnson as, as Speaker of the City Council to do with his powers. Like, I think that I can have sympathy for the human being who is struggling and trying to fight hard. But at the end of the day, we must be the people that hold power to account. That's what we're called to do. And if we don't do that, and if we forget that they've amassed these amounts of power, we're doing a disservice to everyone in the city. Wait, do you think he could have done more is what you're saying? He, you think he... Absolutely. I think, I think that we need to stop allowing progressives or establishment folks or anybody get away with saying that I tried very hard. In my personal opinion, which is why I'm not a politician, you haven't tried hard enough until you're booted out of the building, until you're voted out. Because what we need to happen is it's urgent. And we're talking about black people's blood being spilled on the earth by a supposed institution that is supposed to create safety for us, you know, on an earth that is soaked in the blood of indigenous communities. And we understand those connections. And I think it's important for the general public and all of us to really be able to hold those complexities, to consider the nuances of what we're talking about and why some concept like defund the police is scary to people, but also why people are still saying we need to radically change how we're running our society. So if you're upset about someone coming to your house or a group of folks going to your boyfriend's house and ringing a doorbell, spray painting a wall, and you're not going to fight like hell to defund an institution that has systemically historically and contemporarily led to violence against black, brown, and low-income people all across this city, to me, that's a non-starter. That's not even a conversation that I want to have. Juanza, I want to move to a couple other things. I'd like you to just talk about what changed with the occupation after the budget deal that did not get to a billion dollars was passed and what happened both up to and then after the uh, police breaking that up in terms of that movement. Sure thing. By July 1st, the original occupation, which was called by Free Black Radicals, which was heavily named as Vocal, um, a group of Black organizers, Black leftists, who were committed to an abolitionist future. But we were also committed to occupying City Hall Park until, until the budget was sealed. So then after that, there were many abolitionists, in, in particular Black feminist abolitionists, who were in the space, notably from an organization called Abolition Plaza, that wanted to maintain that space. And there were so many people across the city that had been activated that were in the space daily for weeks who were committed to staying to fight for a bigger and wider demands. Because again, our demand in, initially was to defund the NYPD by at least a billion dollars and that's important, at least a billion dollars, to fund housing, education, healthcare, and social services, including mental health care services, et cetera, and to block any cuts to social services that were coming because of the economic impacts of COVID-19, even though we could just tax the 118 billionaires that live in New York City. So basically, leadership sort of was being transferred to these other organizers and I'm naming one organization, but there are many folks, many organizing bodies that were still in that space that wanted to maintain it. So we worked with them to sort of like transfer any resources that we had left over, like money that had been raised for food and for supplies in the camp that thousands upon thousands of New Yorkers and people across this country generously donated so that we could sustain that occupation. So, um, And when you say became, there, is that local? Because, because some of that money came through local? So, if you're going to raise resources, you need a centralized place to be able to distribute those resources. So Vocal New York, because we are a 20-year-old organization with a fiscal infrastructure, we were the most capable of 
managing those donations and tracking where money's being spent so that we can report said use of funds and follow the law. And all of those resources have been spent since then. So after July 1, the park essentially goes from being called Occupy City Hall to being called Abolition Park. And from there, they maintain all of the sort of like direct services that they were providing to people, including a mental health care services, including three meals at least a day, warm meals, including, you know, a library, doing political education teachings, you know, launching direct actions and, you know, just creating community. And also we started to see, um, and I think this is where the Errol Lewis and the sort of like problematic media takes on what was happening there. The number of people experiencing homelessness started to rise in the park and became much more visible, even though people experiencing homelessness were always in the park. And in fact, we're in the park before the occupation because we have a crisis of homelessness in this city. And we have a crisis that is so extreme that it rivals that of the Great Depression. And this is a fact. And we see that it's slated to, to grow very soon because the rents have not been canceled and 50 plus thousand people are at risk of being evicted from their apartments by next month. Before this occupation, there wasn't an encampment. There were just people sleeping in the parks. And then there was this encampment. And at least for a minute, the NYPD wasn't immediately breaking it up like they often do, right? Uh Uh-huh, exactly. Um, And and I think that's only because of the amount of power that we were demonstrating in that space and and the amount of attention. After the NYPD does break this up, can you talk about what then happens to this abolitionist movement uh, for the people who've been working in the park and what happened to the homeless population that had been in the park? So two things. One, it needs to be very clearly understood. I said this to you yesterday, Harry, Mm -hmm. that no one became homeless to join an encampment. People were experiencing homelessness and they joined the encampment because they understood that the abolitionists understood them as full human beings deserving of respect and dignity. And they found resources and refuge, including, you know, masks and sanitizer and food, et cetera. And those services that I mentioned before. So I don't know what happened to all of the people that were, um, you know, displaced from that space once um, the NYPD came in, because I know that DHS was saying that we were going to try to get those folks into shelters. But again, we understand because of COVID-19 that shelters are petri dishes. So they're not safe for people. And, you know, the CDC named that we should keep encampments intact where homeless people are, are encamped because it actually helps us flatten the curve for COVID-19. So, yeah, you know, it was a... De Blasio said it was, just, he, he offered public health as a reason for breaking this up. He said, this isn't about social justice issues anymore. It's a public health concern first and foremost as his also, justification. He also noted that if we see encampments around the city, that they would pretty much be broken up too sweet and the public ought not worry. I'm paraphrasing. And, and I think that's a mistake. And I think that's a reminder as to why this mayor has failed failed New Yorkers. Like you should be trying to house people experiencing homelessness, not in shelters, because shelters are for crisis moments. People should not be in shelters for years at a time, especially when they have access to housing vouchers and dealing with this source of income discrimination issue in the city. And the city does not fund the Office of Human Rights enough to actually be able to address that issue. That's another thing that we can always talk about, but I don't want to go into that. But essentially, Abolition Park is not just about that physical space. It's about the community um, connected around a set of ideas that are centering the lives of Black people and understanding the policing as an institution, capitalism, white supremacist ideologies as the sort of core of the driving factors of violence in our society. So Abolition Park is still an active formation of people under the umbrella of trying to build an abolitionist society, which means a society without prisons, without police, without the carceral state, without surveillance. And they are still holding teachings, doing direct actions, and 
I don't think we've seen the last of them. In fact, they had a 24-hour march and actions yesterday, starting at 11 a.m. with a press conference and ending around, I want to say, 5 a.m. after holding a sort of ball, which is like a LGBTQ cultural phenomena where Black primarily and Brown queer folks created this sort of like culture and um, sort of generated like chosen families. And it's this practice that's happened for over 100 years in LGBTQ communities of color. And that so, was where th- this arrest of one of the organizers, Nikki, took place. Uh, no, I think that the arrest of Nikki took place. And I think we should also be clear, the arrest and kidnapping and the traumatizing of a woman of the trans experience happened in broad daylight in Manhattan. So this was not at 5 a.m. This was in the daytime. And, you know, I think just reminding us of the fascist tactics that law enforcement use to not only sort of capture people that are supposedly committed a crime, but to sort of send a message to those of us who are challenging the capital S state, who are challenging the powerful police unions that they can disappear us at any given moment and that we have very little protections. And I think that this is cause for alarm for all of us. And I think reminds us why a concept like defund the police is critical to maintaining a democratic experiment. Joanza, we're in overtime. We're going to go to double overtime. So in these remaining five minutes, I'm hoping that you can discuss for a moment what's happening. Speaking of physical spaces with uh, with Vocals headquarters and the budget and the speaker and also about what's been happening with uh, syringe exchange programs around the state. Sure. So one, we have been in this building for nearly 20 years and we're on 4th Avenue in Park Slope near the Barclays Center. And as you might imagine, it's a very hyper developing area. So we've been essentially gentrified out of this building. Like most of the businesses on this street that I've, you know, that have been here for like decades are no longer here. We're like one of the last remaining institutions in this community that's still here. So we have been trying to figure out how to purchase a building. So we went through a discretionary funding process with the city council last year to help us purchase our permanent home. And also, so that's clear for people, it's not that they're funding necessarily our political activity, but our direct services. We provide direct services and syringes and other harm reduction services, and also help us out to see testing, surveillance, and treatment out of our office um, for, for new, people that New Yorkers, are, real quick, like Fourth Avenue was a vast dividing line. Fifth Avenue was the soft marker, and Fourth Avenue was it. And Bloomberg rezoned Fourth Avenue. These giant, quote unquote, luxury buildings went up that, that, that were a mess. And it had like a rapid and particularly like jarring and absurd gentrification. But yeah, I- and I think we're, we're victims of, of that. And we, we were able, you know, because we're a powerful institution, we were able to stay for some time. We had a lease, but that lease is coming to an end. But essentially, we learned shortly after the end of our part of Occupy City Hall that suddenly our discretionary funding to support um, us buying this building that we found and that we had a deal to purchase, but contingent on the money that was promised to us from city council. And then suddenly it's not there. So it felt like a political retaliation. I can point you to a statement from the institution that we released yesterday after the Sally Goldenberg article was released in Politico. But, you know, I think it's uniquely like a challenging moment because we do have a a history of working very closely and very well with Speaker Corey Johnson, especially because he understands so intimately the issues that we work on because of his own lived experience and also being an LGBTQ person in the city building political power. um, We've worked with him a lot. So I think that it was a very complicated moment for us. But I do understand that it's important for us, even if we have, you know, relationships with elected officials, um, even if we're like, you know, sort of being attacked by that th- those same officials, we have to name that because it's, it's about so much more than vocal and our ability to buy a building, but it's about what does it mean for people to be engaged in political advocacy in the city and face retaliation that threatens direct services that keep 
people alive amid a crisis of overdose in this city and across the state and really across this country. So it was a major gaffe. It was definitely problematic. I think that there's avenues for um, sort of reconciliation, um, like restoration of funds, et cetera. But we'll see what happens. That's up to the speaker and his team. But that has shaken us up. So essentially, in a nutshell, we can still move into our building, but we can't yet purchase it. And we also will have to pay a lot more money every month to be in it than we would have otherwise. I, I, to me, at least, and this may be a conversation for another time, and I hope you'll come back on, like this begs really interesting questions about whether service work and advocacy work should necessarily be under the same umbrellas and given given the relations to government funding. But that really is its own conversation. I, I do know that, that you would like to speak to what's been happening with furloughs in uh, syringe exchange programs, which I think is one of the many immediate issues New Yorkers are, are wrestling with in the course of everything that's happening right now. Yeah, I can be real quick about this. Um, one, I think it's essential that whenever you're organizing people, especially people in crisis, that you understand what their immediate needs are and that when you can provide those immediate needs, you should provide them because they also give us sort of the deeper sort of moral compass. Like, is this good for the people that come into our syringe exchange? Should we try to fight for this bill? And your finger is so so close to the issue when your finger's on the pulse, it gives you a sharper insight and a, and a clarity that prevents you from making mistakes on in, in the name of people. So I do think that we should be able to do both at the same time, especially if our government is supposed to be by and for us um, as the people, capital P people. But the other thing is, um, I can't speak to great detail, but right now across New York State, a number of harm reduction service organizations that provide life-saving services, including syringe access, which prevent HIV and hepatitis C, and also access to naloxone, the opioid overdose prevention drug, um, reversal drug, the staffs of many of these organizations have been furloughed because of Governor Cuomo sort of playing chicken with President Trump around federal funds coming into the state. So he's sort of neglected to pay the contracts that allow these organizations to function and pay staff to provide these, these essential services for people across the state. And it's creating a, a crisis that will not be visible until some time for now, but I think that we should be holding him to account around that. And if you want to learn more about that, you can look up End Overdose New York. And you can reach out to um, Jasmine Bonella at Vocal New York, who's our drug policy campaign's coordinator, who could talk more in detail about that. Just to clarify, when you talk about Cuomo's playing chicken, that's at the beginning of the pandemic when Absolutely. in order to push through his new Medicaid redesign throughout the state, he held up federal funds coming into the state. Is that that's the the chicken you're talking about? Yeah. And essentially what I'm just trying to get across is that I don't think that people's lives, especially people in crisis, should be bargaining chips to engage in political back and forth, um, you know, on a on a national stage, which we all saw Governor Cuomo really ate that up, um, which is great for him. But I'm concerned about the experiences of low income people across this state who are impacted by HIV, homelessness, mass incarceration and the drug war. And those people are not only in New York City. They are all across this state in Rochester, Buffalo, Syracuse, Plattsburgh. They're everywhere. And we need to remember them. And often they're left out of the conversations. Juanza, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time and coming on. I hope we'll uh, continue on the podcast and otherwise this conversation. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. Anytime, any, any moment, I think it's important for us to have independent journalism. Even whenever we sort of disagree on some things, I do think that it's important to create these spaces where dialogue can be had because oftentimes uh, we don't get to say fully what's happening. And because of that, people don't understand. And then because of that, we can't build the kind of power that we need to transform our society. F-A-Q. FAQ is headquartered at the McSilver Institute of Poverty Policy and Research. 
It is brought to you by Racket Media. Our hosts are Harry Siegel and Christina Greer. Me, Alex Lynn, I'm the executive producer. Our episode producer and sound mixer and designer and master of all things is Adam Kamara. Special thanks to guests Jumane Williams and Jawanza James Williams. Everyone, be safe, be cool, wear a mask. And just be sad that you're not in the Poconos fishing in a creek with two little kids. Or on a beach in Long Island without any little kids. Right. Either way, be jealous.